0: Hopefully there's enough geeks out there that enjoy, like, oh, that's how they do that. That's super cool. And, you know, now I know why that guy wears a big helmet, because he's got uh, hearing stuff on. And his helmet has to be larger to encompass, you know, his hearing gear. Oh, that's interesting. That's what the movie's built on. It's not classical drama. It's built on feeling and seeing and understanding and discovering all these things that make this kind of warfare interesting.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Aaron Schneider's new historical drama, Greyhound. The film follows a World War II Navy officer on his first wartime command assignment, defending an Allied merchant ship convoy through the Atlantic. When the convoy comes under attack by a German submarine Wolfpack, the officer must battle the enemy, the elements, and his own doubts to see the mission through. In addition to Greyhound, Mr. Schneider's other directorial credits include the feature film Get Low, an episode of the series Popular, and the Academy Award-winning short film Two Soldiers. Mr. Schneider spoke with fellow director Justine Bateman about filming Greyhound in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
2: Hey. Hey, Justine. Hey, we're on. Oscar winner Aaron Schneider. I'm so happy we get to talk about this film.
0: I'm glad you're here. Thanks for doing this.
2: Well, just a little backstory for anyone who's listening. Um, I uh, I watched Greyhound. You know, get like, oh, we're we're locked down. Oh, there's this new film. Like, what's this major film doing on? No, no offense to Apple, but like on Apple, this is fantastic. And um, and and I thought, okay, well, you know, it's a. Tom Hanks in a World War II movie, and no offense to Tom Hanks, but he's done a few World War II movies, right? It takes place entirely on a boat, I think, you know, before I watched it. And I'm like, well, we'll see. I was not prepared for it to be one of the best action films I've seen in a really long time. So Thank you. for anyone who's listening, like, I immediately contacted Aaron's reps. I'm like, can you pass this email on to him, please? Like, just tell him, like, what a great job I think he did. Holy shit. So, and thankfully, you know me back and now we're friends. But we so how did, okay, Get Low, your first film, which was so great. Uh, it was definitely not an action film. And so do you think the producers of Greyhound had any idea they were going to get such like a finely tuned action film from you? Like, how could they have known that? How did this come about?
0: Well, it actually came about through enthusiasm, I think, primarily. I I read the script, and you can imagine what reading the script is like. It's a lot of procedural dialogue, and and you really have to look under the words for for what, you know, in this case, Tom Hanks, the screenwriter, was trying to do. Yeah. And I I just sort of said, I get it. I get it. I can see this. And I was thinking of that um, scene in Close Encounters uh, where the uh, air traffic controller is handling this situation where one of his airplanes is seeing a UFO coming right at him. And it was, um, you know, and and you don't cut to the UFO, you don't cut to the uh, to the pilot, the airplane. It's just all centered. All the drama hinges around this radio control operator, and there's shots of the radar screen, right? Um, and you know,
2: Aaron, I thought you were going to say the the mush, the uh, mashed potato scene. All oh, right, Close Encounters. Like I, I see it. I see it.
0: Exactly. Okay, um,
2: These other scenes. No,
0: it's the radio control guy, and he's telling the airplane what to do to avoid the UFO. And all of the drama is centered around one guy staring at a radar screen, and it's terrifying. And I thought, okay, this is a little scary because it's not conventional. We're not going to see the sub very much, if at all. Um, and um, and you know, one guy, in this case, Tom Hanks, is going to be the conduit for everything the audience is supposed to feel. And you know, if anybody can do that, it's Tom. But it it was unique, and so, but I got it. It sort of, it sort of, I said, I get it. I see, I see what he's trying to do. And I sent off an effusive email about what I thought this could be to my agent. It somehow, as the story goes, went up the chain to Tom's agent, who happened to be on the phone and read him my email. And Tom said, well, yeah, cool. Uh, why don't I sit down with him? And that's what ended up happening. I went in and we spent two, three hours at Playtone, his company with Gary Getsman. And, um, you know, there's Band of Brothers Emmys. Surrounding me in this room, and Tom and I just started talking about film and our, our favorite filmmakers. And I plugged him for all the um, DPs he'd worked with that I admired when I came up as a cinematographer. And yeah, what was and, it
2: like to work with this guy and that guy? Right. And all that? You know,
0: Gordon Willis and Conrad Hall. And um, and then he plugged me for you know he's a Bill, Bill Murray fan, you know, and Robert Duvall fan. So uh, there were people I'd worked with he admired that he wanted to talk about, and so yeah. it was. Just kind of fun filmmaker talk. And when it was all over and done with, regardless of my previous film or my resume or whatnot, um, he basically just used his filmmaker's instinct. And it's interesting because, you know, actually tonight I know for a fact my one of my mentors and a director I used to work with, Charlie Hayde, is listening. Hello, Charlie.
2: Okay. Charlie.
0: <laughs> Charlie gave me my he gave me my first break as a cinematographer on a Bochco TV show, and it was the right. same dynamic. It was like we just started talking about what, how cool this could be and said, hey, let's do this. Let's build a treehouse together, right? Yes. And it was completely instinctual, and that's kind of the way it felt with Tom. It's like he didn't care that I wasn't Spielberg. He wanted to. He knew I was excited. He knew I had ideas, and he wanted someone to make a movie with, and it just kind of worked out that way.
2: Now let's touch on that Bosco thing for a second, because that was your first cinematography job, right? Yeah. And you got Emmy nomination right out of the gate, and ASC awards.
0: Yes, yes.
2: Right out of the f- gate, and then get another one—not with Get Low, but your your Oscar short, your first yeah. directing job. Got an Oscar right out of the gate. Yeah. Did that mess with your head at all?
0: Well, yeah, a little bit. Um, it sets the bar pretty high, and it did take five years after all that to get my first feature off the ground. And
2: Really? What, I, mean, like, I mean, things take time. Things take time. But it doesn't seem like you get an Oscar or a short. It seems like everybody would be like, oh, my God, come over, come over. The,
0: the the nicest way to put it, Justine, is that it opens doors, but it does not get you through them. Oh, right? So
2: they're like, oh, we want to meet you now that we've met you. Thank you.
0: Uh, but, but but for anybody, uh, it's hard to get a movie made, especially in the indie space. Yeah, and at of that, course. Time, in that time, it was, you know, the indie space was a little extra difficult. We made Get Low like three months after the big crash, you know, the big 2008. Um, yeah. So we financed yeah. it in the middle of that mess. And then we sold it in Toronto, like in the worst year ever, where we were one of the only sales At Toronto to Sony classics. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was just hard because this, as we all know, this business is hard.
2: Yeah. It is hard to get anything made. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's talk more about, about Greyhound. Um, one of the things that really struck me was this, uh, I got my notes, um, (laughs) this, uh, like I found there to be a lot of impact, Shoved into moments, so I'm going to call that like an economy of detail and economy of shots for maximum effects. Like in the like the first, the very first moments of the film, the newsreel, uh, voiceover, and the music, um, like really set the for me like the terror of war and the importance of the convoy. Like that's not easy to do in what under a minute. That that little segment, I feel like it felt like under a minute. A lot of films. I'll be twenty minutes into it, going, "What? What? Why? What's the importance? What the? What's the conflict?" And you just like, boom, said it so easily, like that. I mean, was that just like, was that just obvious to you, or did that take some finessing to to impart that so quickly in that short space there?
0: Well, what's the term? In medias res. You know, it was the screenplays was sort of designed to thrust you right into it. So the trick was okay, we've got to get enough historical context into the audience uh, so that yeah. we can throw them into this. But if we throw them into it with too little information, you know, it's hard enough to start off with a, a bang. If they don't have enough basic information, they can get lost fast, especially in this environment, which I, which is, is going to be new to an audience because no one's made a Navy flick for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so we put together, you know, we used that, Sort of classic opening sequence where logos and whatnot are coming up and and slowly dip them down through the clouds to give us a to give us kind of a uh, palette to uh, let some vintage radio kind of set the tone and, um, and let people know from the start that you know that we're going to throw them into danger as quickly as we can.
2: Well, that was really well done. I think I really set it well. Um, and then. I feel like there's that same dense economy of time and shots when that first U-boat is suspected. Like the, I mean, the intensity of that, I just, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've watched it a few times now. I feel like I need to watch it like again to like get like what you were doing exactly to drive that like, so... So how are you planning and choosing the shots to create that that initial tension, you know? Were you just like going on instinct or you did it in the editing room or whatever, but it was so specific. I'm just wondering how you composed that.
0: Uh, it's a good question because uh, for those who haven't maybe seen the movie, uh, the first act of the I film... If you haven't
2: seen the movie, like go see it immediately after watching this on Apple.
0: The first act of the film is one big long drawn out, you know... Uh, Tension-filled pursuit of a single U-boat, and um, it's a you know a, a destroyer chasing a U-boat is a game of cat and mouse, um, and that was certainly cinematic to start with. It's like a game of cops and robbers, right? You yeah. got cops chasing the robbers. Uh, one of the and but but a couple of the unique aspects of it uh, were that number one, I I couldn't you do the shot through the front windshield of the cops at the robber trying to get away, right? Because mm-hmm. my because my robber was underwater. Yeah. Um so in terms of, you know, and and the and the real art and craft of finding a U-boat and 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 getting rid of it is about listening through sonar, determining directionality and then kind of compensating, you know, you're flying blind but there's this yeah. beast underwater and so before that, and all those things are really interesting, I think, for an audience and can be elements of tension if the audience understands them. If you know what I mean, if they understand this is a game of cat and mouse with a mouse that's underwater. So maybe one of the first challenges is uh, how do I convey the mouse if I can't see him? Yeah. And So one of the things we did is um, because I can't see the mouse. Uh, yeah I've got commands coming from sonar that say it's zero one off the port bar or starboard, but no one's gonna really process that either. so we used Tom's body language and we came up with the idea that uh, that as the as the mouse scurried to the port side of the ship, Krauss would transfer his body almost as if he had a sort of a connection physical connection with the mouse. Mm-hmm. If the mouse scurried to the left of its bow then Tom would. We'd stage him to move over to the left side left window, right where he felt like he had a connection to it, and then he'd get another command, you know starboard zero zero one and even though the audience doesn't know what that means, yeah. he does, and now he shifts over to the starboard windows and looks out at the water and you know you get a rhythm going like that, and hopefully the audience suddenly kind of gets a sense that I can't see the mouse, but I can tell by what Krauss in this case, the character Krauss is doing that he's, he's moving back and forth, right? He's connected on a one-to-one, you know? And so now he's a stand-in for, for the mouse in that sense. And, um, and then the POV, when he did look uh, towards what he's chasing, all you see is water, but that POV is shifting to the right side of the center line of the ship when he's on the starboard and to the left side of the center line of the ship when he's at port. So even those POVs hopefully become kind of a...
2: Connected with his feelings about it rather than, here, we'll show you the water.
0: It it starts to feel like I'm using the center line of the ship to tell the audience where the sub is at any given point in the sequence. And then the other element was, um, this was really fun to play with, was the sonar. We all know sonar pings in, in submarine movies. Yeah. And, you know, they're sending sound out waiting for it to reflect off the sub and come back. And the time that's that, t- that transpires tells them how far away the sub is and where it's at, right? And so there's a guy sort of managing that, and there's a rhythm to that. Not only is a rhythm to that sound traveling out and back, there's a rhythm to the analog communication between the sonar guy who then relays it to the talker, who then relays it to the captain, then the captain responds to the talker and the talker responds to sonar. And, and did you have
3: a
2: sense of that rhythm like while you were directing it or you're just like, let me get all these pieces and when I'm in the editing room, I know which, I know what rhythm I'm going to place. Which
0: was it? Good question. We 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 shot to a radar ping, a little bit like you'd shoot a music video. You know, you turn the ping on and so the actor knew, you know, it would go ping and it would come back and it would ping again. So he knew... I would tell him, okay, uh, this first this first reading you get, let's have it come on the second ping, and then when you get the third ping back, that's the cue to tell him, you know. So he, so the ping drove his dialogue, which drove the theme. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, I I just happened to grab an insert shot of, on a, on a, you know you know how you shoot the, like yeah. you got twenty minutes to grab the inserts. I said, grab that button right there on the sonar button that says um, pulse rate. Because as they got closer to the sub, the amount of time it would take that, you know. So the
2: noise, the frequency of the noise increases.
0: Yeah, you can you can shorten the amount of number of pings that you do because you're now closer and you can get readings faster. Yeah. And so having established that that rhythm that the audience sort of connects to like a heartbeat, as they get closer and closer, it just turned out by luck and by you know technical coincidence that I could have him twist that knob to a faster pulse length, and now suddenly my soundtrack, my pings, are speeding up much the same way, like a composer might speed up the tempo as you get closer and closer to a kill. And then of course we tried, you know, that hopefully inspires the the soundtrack, you know, the uh, the score, yeah. and they're coming together in that respect. You're you're trying to convey a cat and mouse game where the mouse is underwater, and uh, and then most importantly, you've got Tom at the center of it, and he's the way into all of this for the audience. And poor Tom, you know this every single shot in that sequence. Tom's staring out at sea stands and a white psych. right?
2: And you're on a set, or you're on the the ship that was docked in Baton Rouge.
0: Uh, We did both, but for the Primarily for this scene, which is all close-up work inside the pilot house, yeah. that was a recreation of the pilot house, expanded in size a little bit to help us with shooting, placed on a uh, a motion base, uh-huh. right, and then and then rocked at at a rhythm, which put the cameraman out of whack a little bit, gave us that sort of documentary vibe, mm-hmm. and, and everybody is dealing with the same forces of gravity. So if someone grabs something, the camera is going to be doing the same thing. And even though a destroyer is sort of tied down and you're not going to see a bunch of stuff swinging,
3: yeah.
0: you know, uh, just rocking that set for every day, uh, put everyone in the same sort of physical sink that you need to catch the, to make the audience really feel like nothing's really nailed down. There's a couple shots where the the set leaked and there's a drip in front of Tom.
2: That, that is on my list.
0: Yeah. Uh, that was an accident. I love that. That was an that accident.
3: So good.
0: And somebody wanted to fix that. I'm like, "No, no, don't fix that." Uh and there was even a scene uh where he he was really close to the drip and I said in the close-up version, we moved his mark so that the drip would actually hit the brim of his hat a little bit. Um, but if you watch that drip, you'll see that it's not plumb, like in, oh, that's great. you know, so real subtle, you know, it's like that, that drip is at an angle because the whole set is, is tilting.
2: That is my next question about details. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to list a few things here. Okay. Okay. First, this continuous background, wait to answer until I've gone through it. Okay. 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 So the continuous background activity. So were the extras given like circa World War II combat ship command training or whatever to know what the heck they were doing? Okay, hold on. Casting. I mean, you have all these World War II faces. The runny noses. The, you know, I think Tom Hanks even blows his nose at one point. The red noses for the cold. The sound. You've got the wind. You've got the sonar blips, the waves, and all analog analog, and then the visuals, the analog equipment, the heavily fogged binocular views, and then further fog and the clouds, and then these tall waves and the water dripping from their hats, and then the roof of the cabin. And another detail that was an emailed question was the, um, they, they asked, uh, there's a lot of numerical and technical exposition, um, things like 14 degrees south-southwest of the convoy, or we're inside the sonar reading circumference. Um, and then they see, complimented you, it said, you know, it's rare in DPC, so- such complexity, complexity, uh, indicated so economically and with such dramatic effect. And, uh, they wanted to know, like, were these details in the script or were they added by the director and his team on the set, like when you're drawing on the, the specifically on the charts? So I know that's a lot of stuff yeah. to cover, but it all falls under these, like, there's very specific details. And again, like, one of the things I loved about it, this, like, really, um, concentrated, economy of shots and details and each detail was very loaded but it it made the film so rich
0: yeah um, there's no question uh, it's a procedural movie, it's an experiential movie, it's not you know, uh, if we had any, any, any sort of thing we had to overcome in terms of expectations, it was that everyone probably assumed this was going to be saving Private Ryan on the water and Tom wasn't interested in that. In fact, he was interested in doing something somewhat experimental. Um, the film starts. It never stops. Uh, it doesn't try to hit all of the classic narrative peaks and valleys in a three-act structure. It's it's trying to sort of immerse you in three hellish days, put you right next to the captain, uh, close enough to him that you can get to know him as a human being through the choices he makes and what's going on, in, you know, behind the eyes. And the, and hopefully if I convey the, dram- the tactical challenges, if I convey how hard it is to find one of these subs and what knobs you have to turn to do it and how hot it is downstairs and how kind of analog this whole process is, yeah. then it all adds up. You know, the fact that the roof leaks, the fact that if you can't see out the window, you got to go outside and you f- freeze your rear end off. You know, if you can throw all of those aspects of the experience at the screen and at the character and immerse him in it, um, then, you know, you're making an experiential movie. You're making a procedural and you're, hopefully you're thrilling people. Hopefully there's enough geeks out there enjo- that enjoy like, Oh, that's how they do that. That's super cool. And, you know, now I know why that guy wears a big helmet like they do in Spaceballs because he's got, uh hearing stuff on and his helmet has to be larger to encompass you know his hearing gear oh that's interesting and it's sort of the i didn't know that factor um that's built into the screenplay and 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 you know tom didn't write himself a dying scene or any monologues or any you know he doesn't sit by the fire and talk about the woman he left at home or that he's afraid to die he just he wrote a character that just takes on the job at hand as he's incessantly challenged uh, mentally wow. and physically um, and ho- and tried to do honor and justice to uh, what made th- these kinds of battles interesting and heroic. Um,
2: that was great. I thought and, it was a really tight script. Did you and, feel that uh, when you first read it?
0: Yeah, but, but to, to, to your question, um, if that's the kind of movie you're making, the things you're talking about is the stuff you make it out of, right? It's it's that's what the movie's built on. Um, it's not classical drama. It's built on feeling and seeing and understanding and discovering all these things that make this kind of warfare interesting and exciting. And um, so they just had to be there. They had to be there. You had to count on the audience's interest in the process, in the procedure.
2: And I like how you didn't. I, I never felt like... I guess some people like things explained to them. I don't, I'd rather be in an experience like you created where, uh, you, you just, you know, like if you're accompanying someone to work and no one's gonna stop and explain to you anything, everything's going on, you know, I guess if you ask questions, somebody will answer it, but you're just, there experiencing all the things that they're doing. And, and like you said, you know, viewers see like, Oh wow, I now I understand why this helmet and stuff, but nobody explained it to them. They can just see the, the the sense of having that kind of helmet and um yeah, and it especially drove home for me like the the types of um information they have to get they had to get from all this analog equipment and I mean everything from the but you know, you think about like the binoculars, like how well are they really working? I mean I like how you you know, you showed like the 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 fog of the um, not the fog; they were fogged up. I yeah. mean, all of this and how cold it was. I mean, I mean, I think you really did a good job of like bringing us into uh, what they were dealing with and the temperatures they were dealing with, the equipment they were dealing with. Everything gave you this. I mean, you really felt like, oh my god, how are they gonna, how are they gonna manage to get anything
3: done? You know?
0: Yeah. No, that was that was where the drama was. That's that yeah. was the whole film. Um, yeah. And, and the details and, uh, the question about the, um, I'll I'll touch on the, the email question about the, uh, the
2: marks on the, on the charts.
0: Yeah. And I think some, the rudder commands and
2: yeah, they're like, was that all in the script?
0: That she, that harkens back to the story I told you about picturing, you know, the air traffic controller in close encounters. What that the reason that scene in Close Encounters is so terrifying, and you should everyone should go watch that again and see how unbelievably tense that is. And it's just a dude staring at a radar screen, right? Um, Is that you're in this environment with a language and a procedure and rules and words that you don't completely understand. And it's intimidating because you don't understand it, but what you do know is something's wrong. Yeah. and I know enough about a radar screen to know those two dots are too close together you know and so the it it makes the audience lean in they're like i there's i don't know i don't understand everything I, I understand enough to be completely drawn in
3: yeah
0: but all these other words are just making it that much more terrifying because I know these people know what they're doing and i'm in a world I'm not completely familiar with and so yet they end up feeling feeling it more than Listening to it and the dot the, the, the you crux, up
2: adding those on the set or were were those all those specifics in the script already
0: it was a little bit of both because uh if Tom had written out all the repetitive dialogue that yeah. goes on, the script would have been like three hundred pages long.
2: you have like an advisor like a yeah. World War II advisor giving you all those
0: you know, so to answer the other question about um were they you know the faces and the way they were um trained yeah. uh we, uh, Dale Dye, who worked with uh, Steven Spielberg and Tom on Saving Private Ryan and put, made, you know, created his famous boot camp where the actors sort of, we we put all the actors uh, on the ship, on the USS Kid, the museum ship that we used for, as a, a match set to our okay. stage set. And metal bunks and um, no heat, you know, the whole, and Dale Dye kept him on board and ran them through drills. Um, for like four or five days in a row, and fed them in the mess room, and and people banged their heads on bulkheads and learned how to move on steel decks and how to climb the ladders, and and they learned um, how to do a military funeral, um, which we recreated in the film, and they yeah. learned and they learned how the, the procedure of bridge operations. Yeah. You know, they just ran little drills where they would run information down to the bottom of the ship and back up so that and the and and it, and so if uh if the helmsman was given an order to turn to hard right rudder he would repeat the command and then he would say he's achieved his bearing and all that sort of training was done beforehand so that Tom's dialogue which is what drove the script yeah. Tom's dialogue would then trigger this environment of military personnel to say and behave the way they would in a yeah. real situation so that it didn't so all that dialogue didn't have to live in the script but Tom's Tom's through line his dialogue his experience would then trigger it and then Tom of course was was um well versed in it as well so he would you know he would soon find himself being on the bridge of a destroyer and it just so happens that the lines he's giving them are from the script instead of, you know, actually sailing the vessel. Um,
2: Yeah. What about the casting? I mean, was it easy or hard to find 1940s faces?
0: Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Some people have period film faces and some people don't. Um, uh, And it's really hard to put your finger on what the difference is, uh, but you kind of know it when you see it. Um, But I worked with one of the, producers at Playtone, Steve Shoreshian, who has been a part of all of those Playtone productions like Band of Brothers and Pacific. Yeah. And and, um, we basically got a bunch of tapes and headshots. And the film's broken down into watches, four-hour watch lengths. And every four hours, a whole new crew leaves and a whole new crew comes in. And those title cards in the film are yeah, are, the, the watches. are the cues for those watch changes. So every time one of those cards comes, a new set of faces appear on the bridge. And so we put up the watches on the board that represented, you know, a 12, a 24-hour period. And we just started moving faces around and oh, yeah. looking at tapes and saying, you know, if the talker is a little short, like, I mean, you know, you have to key off something, right? So if you... Yeah. The scene, the opening scene with the big, long, extended uh, sub chase, there's like a real tall, lanky helmsman at the wheel, and mm-hmm. there's a real tiny little squeaky guy at the lee helm. Right. So, if you know, it's like it was just something sort of interesting about throwing this tall, lanky guy up against this little mousy guy. Yeah. And in the, I knew in the two shot that I don't know, there, you know, all I'm going to hear him say is commands. But if I right. look, do they feel like what, you know, do they feel like two guys that joke around with with each other at, in the mess hall? You know, yeah. do they feel like they're you have a, about
2: their relationship? Yeah. Yeah. So
0: you can put faces next to each other and say, yeah, that guy, like the same thing applied to. There's that scene in the beginning where Tom Hanks Krauss uh sort of disciplines two guys who got in a fight.
2: Right, exactly
0: and they're led in front of the captain. And, I, and when they walked in and stopped with their cut lips and their bruised eyes, uh-huh. I, I wanted to know, I'm like, I know exactly who those guys are right. and, and why, you know, they hate each other. So you're putting... Like, I faces, know why you know,
3: they hate each other. That's really like That
0: guy started it. You can just tell, right? So yeah. you're trying to build little stories out of faces like that.
2: <clears throat> well, well done on that. Speaking of – so I want to, I like, talk about a, a couple of the emotional moments and and have you talk about that. So Cleveland's death, the chef. This mm-hmm. is – what's the actor's name? Rob Morgan? Rob Moore? Morgan. Rob Morgan. Yeah. Oh my God. Terrific actor. What a great actor. Okay, so his death made me cry both times I watched the film. And I love the way that this was revealed by – I love the spine of his – trying to feed the cap is the captain or the commander captain he's both. Okay. So him trying to feed the captain and then having a new head chef show up. I thought that was such a great way to, to kind of show that. And then the other moment was the, um, the burying the dead at sea, you know, and I got the sense it was like internally for them. It was like, we'll feel this later. We can't feel Mm -hmm. this now because like we have to work, but we'll feel this later. These feelings. And so and I felt like these emotional moments, uh, they pay off. It's, it's not like these are moments where like, you know, nobody's crying or yelling or anything like this, but I feel like they paid off so deeply because you had, um, as a, as a result of the investments you made in the prior scenes, like you, you built a chain up to that moment so that in that moment, all it needs to be is what a new guy shows up with a tray. What's a big deal. Right. But you see that you're like, Oh my god, I oh don't know you know, and I'm crying. So have, so I wanted to ask you like, how did you assemble the design of the emotional investments leading up to those the payoffs of those two scenes specifically?
0: It's a interesting question and it was a it was scary for me. My first feature was really built on classic you know, drama, human relationships, you know complex histories,
3: right.
0: uh, you know, classic drama. And Greyhound never pretended to be uh, heavily constructed dramatically. It's It's got... it's well, com-
2: funny because it, it it has some of the best dramatic moments of all the screeners I've seen this year. So it's funny that you say that.
0: Well, when I, what I mean by that is it's not leaning very hard on it. Like it's not yeah. written in right. there. And it's, it shouldn't be surprising that that the screenwriter being an actor is relying on the footprint of the actor in the film and what they do with it to create the world. And re- like, Yes, on paper, all Rob Morgan is doing through the first part of the film before the funeral is delivering food to the captain, yeah. offering him coffee or to make a sandwich, right? Uh, but an actor like Rob Morgan gets in there And an actor like Tom Hanks, you know, and suddenly uh, in the opening scene, Tom bows his head to give thanks for the food. And you see Cleveland, the character Rob Morgan plays, bow his head and he says, amen. Right. And you immediately go, ah, those are two men of faith. And they seem pretty friendly with each other. I'll bet there's something there. Right. There's another there's another version of that scene where he's just an extra, porn and coffee. But the actors are building a relationship out of just these little pieces that Tom has written into the – Yeah. Or even
2: he has a tiny line later where he says, he says, the captain hasn't eaten yet today, he needs to eat. You know, like, just like one tiny line, you're like, oh, my God, this guy really – who's watching out for the captain?
0: Like, everyone's,
2: like watching the captain for instructions, but who's watching out for the captain's well-being? And it's this guy.
0: And there was something really beautiful about this. People point out, and, and rightly so, that he's essentially a servant. He's a he's a he's a, a waiter. He's a butler. Um, uh, but but there was actually, and and it's true that World War Two Navy was segregated in this respect. Uh, if they weren't at um, now. Uh, Uh, Black sailors did spit lead with the best of them during um, general quarters. They got on guns and they fought just like everyone else. But then but the jobs that were relegated to them uh, in a segregated Navy uh, were confined to the mess duties. Um, However, there's a real beauty in serving someone. Um, This guy is serving his captain in, in, in the only way he can. And 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 he's taking care of his captain.
2: Taking care of, him. that's what I mean. Like he's really caring for him.
0: And then when you you add to that, just you know how how much beauty there is in the concept of you know nur- you know uh, nourishing someone in general. You know we uh, can't live without food. And so there was this really, even though you can look at it as if it was a, a an outgrowth of segregation, there's also something really beautiful about. The relationship between a guy who's keeping his captain fed and the and the captain, and that's what that's what the script was trying to explore, and it did it in little tiny pieces that are very you know and so that you hope when you finally cut to his body being dropped into the water that these actors and the screenplay and you have given the audience enough to feel what you need to feel for that yeah. to, right. And it's not it's not trying to do something huge. It's just trying to make you feel something and bring these characters to life.
2: I feel like too many too many actors, writers, and directors who try to jam it into that moment, that particular scene, instead of laying it out beforehand. I especially find it true in comedy. It's like if you have laid stuff in in comedy and, and the audience knows who these characters are. Then they just have to have like, there there could be a moment where they just have a look and the audience will just burst out laughing, even though nothing's happened because they're like, I know what she's thinking right now, or I know what he's about to say, you know? And in the same way in drama, sometimes, you know, if you, if you load it up properly, you know, like if it's in a romantic scene and a, a man just touches the back of a woman's, you know, hair or something. You can be like, oh my God, like it can just seem like the most romantic thing that's ever happened because you've loaded it up instead of like thinking, oh, now we've got to have this, like they hit the wall and rip each other's clothes off. And I don't know, that doesn't really get me going when I watch it. But if you load something up, yeah. it's going to be cool.
0: Tom's taste and mine are aligned in that respect. And as we were developing the screenplay a little bit before we started shooting, I would sometimes lean a little harder on some of this stuff, and Tom would go, "No, no, no!" Uh, let's and, not
2: have it these subtle yeah, like breadcrumbs. And,
0: and the way he put it, he'd always say, nah, let's not put a hat on a hat." Right, that was his yeah. favorite phrase. Um, and uh, you know, and that's that's my taste too. Um, and we were a good, we were a good sort of balancing act for each other, I think, in that. Um,
3: Perfect.
2: Um, okay, let's talk about VFX. Okay. Because I had no idea when I was watching this that, I mean, it made sense to me after. I'm like, oh, okay, of course. But I had no idea there was no water. Right? There's no practical water. Do I have that right?
0: We fooled you, yeah. Or at least we I fooled know. you most of the time.
2: 100% CGI water. You have the USS Kid, the in Baton Rouge. You've got your set. that's on a gimbal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had heard that the VFX team shot the skies around the UK in winter for the sky plates and yep, like that. Okay. Um, now Tim Miller's a friend of mine who did uh, Deadpool and he's done a lot of VFX and animation and all this. So when he did his first film, he knew what he needed to shoot in order to accommodate all of that. Right. So you tell me like i you know you've done you know your academy award winning short and then you do get low which is you know terrific but no vfx that that are apparent how did you grab hold of like knowing what you needed to shoot and not shoot considering the massive amount of vfx that are going to be around the boat like how did you bring that together
0: well uh I made sure when I went in to meet Tom's partner Gary Getzman. Uh, I, when I first wanted to go get into film, I was a ILM fan, okay. reading Cinefex. So my way into the movie business was through old Cinefex magazines and wanting to shoot, wanting to go to work for ILM.
3: Okay.
0: And then I got into film school, and um, the first thing they tell you is it's all going to be computerized in the future, and you're like, oh man, I just got to. I just got out of 2 years of engineering. I don't want to deal with computers. I want I want to like build movies. What
2: was your engineering background? Was it uh software I was, or
0: hardware? I was, two, I was 2 years into mechanical engineering uh before transferring to film school at USC. Okay. And so I said I looked around and cinematography was there in the wings which which is, you know, the ultimate sort of you know, if the directors, the architect, you get to be the construction guy, right? Yeah. Uh, and um and so I gravitated to that, and uh, and then you know moved to directing, did my short. That was the transition for that. And then my first feature was this sort of folktale-ish period drama. But the truth is, you know, I'd I'd come into this whole world as a fan of visual effects, and in fact, over the past ten ten to twelve years, ironically, uh, hap you know happened upon this software that everyone you know the standard software used in visual effects now and started self-teaching myself how to compile.
2: What's, what's it called, Aaron? There?
0: Well, there's Maya, there's Nuke. There's all different facets, you know, within yeah. visual effects that require different softwares. But a lot of previs is done with a software called Autodesk Maya. And I sort of just geeked out on that for years. Some people were binging, you know, Netflix, and I was binging, you know, visual effects tutorials. and oh. and uh, And so... I was able to put together a little previs and to, you know, as a kind of a talking point for Tom and Gary, when I went in the second time Uh, and part of it was to try to acquaint them with the fact that they'd invested themselves in someone who was going to be able to handle the visual effects of this.
2: Little did they know, right? Yeah.
0: And, 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 and we actually put together, we didn't use like a third floor or anything. We put together our own four walled uh, pre pre previs, team we rented computers we found artists we put together our own room and our database and our workflow and um and i even went to work on i i had this idea i said i thought i have to find a way of recreating the sense of open ocean photography as if we were out there shooting this on the ocean but i gotta find a way to make i'm going to be in a digital world for this but i gotta find a way of making it feel authentic and grounded in reality and so i went to work I, I found a, a a game engine plugin that simulates water waves, and you can type in the Beaufort scale and the mass of your ships, and it'll float right. ship the physically re- realistic way, right? And so I, even before we started filming, I was like, "How can I get realism in my visual effects?" And and I put a camera on one of the boats. So by recreating, Wait,
2: Aaron, did that did that inform uh, how you set the motion yep. of the gimbal?
0: Absolutely. Ah, nice. in, in fact, I uh, I actually. I was able to measure, uh, well, I'll tell you, if you want to really geek out. So I'm floating both of these boats, right? Uh-huh. And I'm putting a camera on one. So I'm now approximating what it looks like for some poor cameraman to try and keep another boat in frame while they're out in the Atlantic with a Beaufort 7 ocean, right? Yeah. And And so that grounds the shot. Even before the artists try to create realism in their imagery, I've given them a shot that's grounded in the way it's really done in the real world, right? It's not a helicopter circling or going through portals and out the other side. It feels like you're out there. Uh, At any rate, um, so I came up with this uh, sort of system that allowed our previs to feel like it was like all those Navy, uh, you know, films online from the 40s where they, the ship next to them was shooting the ship next to them. Yeah. but in a digital environment. And that became the foundation oh, of it. What, of a, the, lot,
2: what a, a, a great collection of information you had for the visual
3: effects people, huh?
0: But to answer your question about, you know, did it affect the way we rocked our set? Yeah. You could then go into the software and isolate this camera on two ships, and you could measure how much vertical displacement was going on as each ship sort of sailed next to each other. You could measure that, and then you could. When we went out to the kid, the museum ship that's moored, you know, steadily yeah. on the river. Now you you do your classic up and down motion, right? Uh-huh. To, to make it look like that ship in dry dock is sailing, but yeah. but we actually took a super techno crane, and on six second intervals, swung a super techno crane up and down forty feet. It took like five guys and they worked their feet. asses off it's because I knew from the math and some of that digital play
3: yeah.
0: that if I was on a ship in the ocean, that's how much offset would be occurring in the real world.
2: my God, if you hadn't done all that math.
0: <laughs> so, you know, and but you, you know, I probably had way too much time on my hands, you know, in pre-production and I tend, and when there's nothing else to do, I tend to geek out pretty heavily so
2: well we all benefited from it <laughs> for sure um and then i was gonna i was gonna ask you about two soldiers and did earning a uh, an oscar right out of the gate mess with your head but we already did that i just think that's incredible i mean had you uh, look I, you'd done a lot of cinematography work you know um on music videos and big films but and then you're like, okay, I'm going to do a short. I mean, was it your first, very first directing job?
0: First, the short? Yeah. Yeah, it was the first thing I wrote and directed. Um, but, you yeah, know, I,
2: I... How did that feel when they're like, you're you're going to be nominated, you're on the short list, you're going to be nominated for an Oscar. Were you like, wait, what? Yeah, I was... Or, or were you like, I don't blame them because this is a masterpiece?
3: What, what Which was it?
0: Well, what? ideally, it's a mixture of both, right? You're, you're both uh, humbled and... Proud of yourself because, you know, these things aren't easy to do. And I actually put, you know, it didn't come without sacrifice. I put, you know, that chunk of money you make by the time you're in your young yeah. 30s, uh, I put it in a bank and spent it on a movie. So I was, you know, I took myself down to, you know, paycheck to paycheck lifestyle just to make that movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because in this business, you have to really make a big splash to make any change happen in your career. And I just knew that if I could find a beautiful story and shoot it in the most bold and um way I could, uh that I'd have a shot at you know. A career in this business is like, like the asteroid. You know, it takes one it you know how the asteroid you have to blow up an atom bomb on the asteroid to like make it go one degree off course? Right? Miss Earth. Yeah, you know, right. careers in this business are a lot like. I saw a- that movie. Exactly, C- careers in this business are a lot like asteroids. If you want it to go in a different direction, you've got you got to set off an atom bomb, or you're just gonna just keep plowing straight ahead.
2: Well, you definitely uh, you blew up the asteroid instead go. of just altering the course, right? You're like, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna make a big splash, and then boom, Oscar nomination. Boom, Oscar win.
3: That's
0: amazing. It was, it was fun. It was it was a lot of fun, and it, but you're also for you know you're also struck with the feeling, the sinking feeling that you might have, this might be, it. You know this might yeah, be. Yeah. It. Was that it? This is like, you know, theoretically, if I want a third act that's more spectacular than this first act, I've got a lot of you know you got a lot of work cut out for you, right? Mm-hmm. So you may have to settle for a first act climax in your life, um, but. You know, the funds in the process, right?
2: Well, I I'm I, I'm like really looking forward to all the rest of the stuff you're gonna do because you know, if those three projects, the short and the and get low and this are any indication, like it's just gonna get more and more spectacular. So I look forward to, you know, all the rest of your work. Uh Aaron, thank you so much for having me moderate this. You know how much I love this film and how how much I love the work that you did in this as a, as a director that's not done as much as you've done. I can still recognize how very much your contribution to this film. Again, great script, great acting, all of this. But as a director, I know like it could very easily not have been the really compelling, engaging, Action film, emotionally devastating film, and I mean, like those two moments I told you I like so much. Um, in someone else's hands, I don't know that those things would have been in there. So, you did a phenomenal job, and I hope everyone goes and sees Greyhound on uh, on Apple. It's a it really great job. Great job.
0: Thank you. I and I had a lot of help. I had a lot. I had a, a terrific crew and a lot of help and uh, the support of. Tom and Playtone, who have, you know, as we all know, done this World War II thing a couple of times right. before, uh, I was just honored to be a part of that legacy. You know, when you get handed the torch, <laughs> you get handed the torch by the guy, you know, from Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers, and they go, run that up the field a little bit.
2: You don't want to be the one to break the chain of the World not, War II. <laughs> that,
0: that is a ball you do not want to drop. Right. Um, so I had a lot of help, and 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 thank you. By the way, uh, you said up front. I, I think you said how we came to meet each other. I yeah. got an email out of nowhere, right. and I wanted to say thank you for that because it might not even be as common as you think it is that that we as directors and uh, and reach out to our peers with these kinds of little pieces of encouragement, and 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 um, and it really meant a lot to me. And so I would like to use this opportunity with the DJ members um, out there listening that uh, this is one of the cool things about being a director is being able to share your work with other directors and hear from them. So everybody out there, if you see something you like, do what Justine did and send them a little note because it'll it'll make their day. Yeah, just
2: go to IMDB and look up who their reps are and just send them an email saying, can you pass this on to Aaron Schneider for me or whatever? And if they do, they do. If they don't, they don't. And if they do, I've found personally 50% of the time, not that that's why I'm sending it, but, you know, I'll get a response too, like say, oh, thanks, you know. And the other 50% of the time, I don't care. I'm just glad they got it, you know, that they that they know somebody noticed.
0: And you um, may make a new friend.
2: You might make a new friend. Yeah. Like you. Uh-huh. I love it. All right. Well, that's our time. And uh, thanks, DGA for. Uh, being, being the cool union that you are and uh, for uh, putting all this together.
0: Thank you, DJ. Thanks for listening, everybody.
1: Thanks for listening to another DJ Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from Gabriela Calperthwaite, Josh Greenbaum, and Nisha Ganatra. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.